it's cheaper than ever to get to space. It's 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 cheaper to launch. You got uh, SpaceX putting up fourteen thousand communication satellites, and they're launching no matter what. And there's people doing ride shares, but those ground stations are the critical piece because those ground stations spread throughout the across the planet are the opportunity for when the satellite comes within range that it can transmit the data that's collecting back down to the Earth to be processed and and leveraged. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. My guest on the show today is Daniel Bradley. He is the co-founder and CTO of a company called Australia. Australia is heavily involved in the Earth observation space. They're building a lot of interesting tech around that. And Daniel has agreed to come on the show today and give us his insights into this industry. Just before we dive into the episode today, I want to remind you that this podcast is sponsored by Open Cage Data. So OpenCage Data is a geocoder and Ed, one of the co-founders of the company, he's actually been on this podcast a couple of times before talking about his work with geocoding and talking about his work in, in the geospatial community with, with, with a group called Geomob. I have had the privilege of working on a few projects with Ed and with geocoding and it's been an absolute pleasure. I really admire what he's building over there and I would encourage you if you have any geocoding needs to check out OpenCage Data. Okay, on with the interview. Hey Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Um, so today we're going to be talking about Earth observation. We're going to be talking about the past, present, and future of Earth observation, and I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Now you are the founder and CTO of a company called Straya. You're dealing with Earth observation data, and you're building a platform around that. And we're, we're definitely going to dive into that later on. But before we get into that, uh, it would be really useful if you could give the audience a brief introduction of how you got involved in Earth observation remote sensing. Sure, absolutely. Uh, excited to be here, and really passionate about this uh, discussion and this topic. You know, I got infected really with um, the power of satellites and, and extracting information from satellites uh, as a young soldier in the late 90s, it was kind of heady times where, you know, being able to pick up a phone and requisition a satellite in support of, you know, operational intelligence support centers where we're supporting war, war fighters and leveraging that information and multiple data feeds from drone, aerial, satellite, human intelligence, and what they call all source intelligence to extract information. And that was kind of my first like aha moment, like, wow, this is incredible. The information and, and data that is being collected at that time in the late nineties, um, it was pretty much isolated to that, to the government, to the department of defense and intelligence, uh, type operations for specifically for earth observing satellite imagery, kind of in the mid two thousands, I transitioned out of the government into private sector and was focused on helping helping individuals, organizations make sense of, of operational data. My math and stats background you know, led me to the AIML. It was just the burgeoning field um, that it is today. Um, I was fortunate enough to work across a number of different industries, insurance, oil and gas, telecom, software, all around making sense of data, leveraging AI and ML techniques to do so. You said a, you said a whole bunch there, and I just want to back up a second because um, yes. first of all, I want to point out to the listeners that you are the very first infected geographer that we've had on on the show. <laughs> uh, we, we've had lots of accidental geographers, but you're the very first one who talks about themselves being infected by this, and I, I think that was worth pointing out. Secondly, you talked about a maths and and stats background. So does that mean that you're not coming at this as a 
as a geographer, someone with an interest in geospatial, you came in it from the side using your your understanding of of maths and and statistical analysis. Absolutely, yeah. I would, I'm very much a non traditional. I, I didn't have a background in in uh, geospatial, you know, geography. I come at it from a math and stats, you know, computer programming um, type of uh, approach. I think it would also be really useful for the listeners to understand what those those early days looked like in in Earth observation. So you talked about being in the military, and you talked about um, looking at Earth observation data and, and trying to sort of get some information out of that. What, what, what did that process look like back then? Was it are we talking heads up digitizing where we're drawing you know circles around interesting objects and georeferencing those, or, or what did that process look like? Uh, yeah, it, it involved all of that. It's a very, very manual, manual process from teams of people, you know, throwing bodies at it. We didn't have a lot of the advanced techniques and the deep learning and a lot of those um, computer vision techniques that, that we're seeing applied today to the space. Uh, so it was drawing, digitizing, cross-referencing that with other platforms and intelligence assets. And, and so very, very manual process. I remember many nights going home with headaches about every night because it's just a deluge of information that you're trying to make sense of. And I could imagine, so identifying those one those features would be one thing, but tracking them across time would be a whole other thing. And then making sense of that with your with your other team members, like, did you get that also? Or is that the same object there? I could imagine that side of things. Those kind of things that we perhaps take a little bit more for granted today would have been incredibly difficult. Yeah, not, there wasn't, yeah, not a ton of great collaboration tools. You know, we often think about satellite imagery, uh, aerial imagery is really where it started and, and, and uh, photogrammetry, but now it's everything censored. Um, and those sensors are, you know, the only thing we were doing with the imagery is really still a measurement about the earth. You know, we're observing the earth and measuring the earth. Now we can do it on a number of different platforms and it's just increasing. Yeah, so, so let's stay with that theme for, for a little bit here because one of the things I really wanted to talk about was was like the, the, the future of, of Earth observation. So we, we got a little snapshot of what it looked like in the past, that kind of heads up digitizing uh, and, and all the sort of problems that involved with that. And then the solution back then anyway was just more people, get more people to do it and then we can do it faster because we have more people doing it. So the, the world looks quite different today. And in a recent post on on Medium, um, you talked about a concept called Space Two. Could you could you give give us a little bit of an overview of what that means for you? You talked about a confluence of a couple of different factors, which I think would be really interesting to to talk about. I certainly didn't coin and, and Australia didn't coin the the concept of Space Two Point but we certainly have been in the in the middle of it. The future, and, and I say you, you said something just a second ago. It was really interesting. It's like it's certainly not the way it used to be. Unfortunately, it, it still is a lot of that way. For I mean, you take the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency (NGA). Just three years ago, they were doing a modernization effort and kicked off a huge modernization effort to try to get away from the manual processing of this data. And so, some of the leading organizations and extracting information from this are still struggling with modernizing beyond throwing humans at it. So we're just at the very beginning of scratching the surface of what is this new wave. And that's what Space 2.0 is to me all about. It's how do we better leverage cloud architectures, AI ML techniques, multimodal data fusion techniques to unlock better insights about the planet and make better decisions. 
So I'm not sure if you're familiar with the, the, the Gartner hype cycle, but this sounds like a, a thing that we could perhaps, a model we could apply to this situation to help better understand it. So the, sure. the, the, the hype cycle says that there's a, a trigger in technology, something new is available. And I think that's probably what we're talking about here when we talk about um, machine learning and, and cloud architecture and obviously the increased availability of satellites. So something new is available, that's the trigger in the market. And if you yep. follow the curve here, it says straight away, the peak of inflated expectations. And then we drop down to yeah. something called the trough of disillusionment, up the yeah. slope of enlightenment and the plateau of productivity. Could you give us your insights there? Where do you think we are on, on this hype cycle? Well, you know, it's interesting. So not about I come at it from a very different perspective. I come at it from the AI ML space. The whole satellite industry, it was only about 25 years ago in 1984 where the U.S. Commercial Space Act was put into place that allowed organizations to launch satellites into space for the purpose of remote sensing of the planet and make it commercially available. So that's only 25 years ago. But we forget how, how short a time has actually passed. And, uh, and it was in the 70s where we had the AI winner, where, like to your point, it was a new shiny technique. We had more computer processing. We had things called neural networks and other things of that nature. And everybody got excited that we can mimic the brain. And, and get to artificial intelligence. And then there was a big backlash because we were at that peak of inflated expectations. I think there are some, some parallels to, to Space 2.0 and, and leveraging this new data source. There's been a flood of venture capital and other money come into the space. A lot of startups like ourselves uh, working in it. And a lot of the businesses and, and organizations are, are grappling with the business cases, the use cases. Where's the justification to leverage this data set? Is it really, does it make a lot of sense to count cars in Walmart parking lots? Or can I get better data that's actually cash register receipts or other ways to get that data that is more effective? And so we are at risk, I think, right now of, of uh, falling into that trough of disillusionment. That was really interesting to have you put that perspective on it in terms of time. So, so when this thing started, you know, because twenty five years ago, thirty years ago, that that's a long time ago. This is, you know, we're talking about in the incredibly early days of the internet, long before smartphones. So that that seems like a long time in the tech world. So I guess it's understandable that that people had some some different kinds of expectations back then, and it's understandable that people look back and go, "Wow, you know, m maybe we should have come further. Perhaps w w what's happening here." So if we stay with this idea of the, the hype cycle, dust for a second, so you think we're perhaps falling down to the trough of disillusionment. And is that because that perhaps people are, you were talking before about people struggling to find applications for this. Is, is there anyone who has found an application for this? Can we see any, can we point at any one or two particular industries and say, okay, they have found a use case. It's working over there. The most clear use case has and continues to be Department of Defense and Intelligence use cases. They have been leveraging this and are the leaders in cutting edge technologies for Earth observation. But it's really about now how do you commercialize? Because it's it's only been really commercially available for roughly 25 years. You know, insurance and financial finance and agriculture and others have went a long time without leveraging this data and have been just fine. You know, now the question is, is where are those use cases? It's really interesting to me that I think the timing, and you kind of talk about time, I think it, it is a matter of time. Uh, the timing and, and the time to adoption is being accelerated by 
a lot of the events that we see going on around it with climate change and, and, you know, a changing planet. And this is a unique opportunity that the technology is available, is promoting, you know, the ability to launch satellites, ability to measure the planet is available to unlock some of those insights and to find those real use cases that will propel the adoption of this technology and hopefully get us through, you know, maybe, maybe we won't spend as much time in the trough of disillusionment uh, <laughs> for our exploration as perhaps other technologies have in the past. Well, I, I hope not. I'm looking forward to seeing what, what, what applications this has and, and where people find some really, really cool use cases for. Um, but interesting enough, we, we both did this. We, we both thought about the military aspect of this. We both thought about how governments are using this. But if you think about the name, what we've been calling this technology for a long time is Earth Observation observing the earth mm -hmm. i think over the last few years it's become more and more apparent that we're that we're facing some pretty pretty big challenges in terms of what's happening with our earth but yet it doesn't seem that that's the go-to answer for, for this technology or the go-to use case i should say for this technology do you think that'll change or is it always going to be sort of industry profit driven I think it'll change. I, I, at least I hope it'll change. Uh, that's, you know, part of the reason why we created this company was to help hopefully be, you know, do our part to propel change because I think it is, you know, at Australia, we, we, we kind of focus on that. We believe it's the right of everybody to understand their planet and how it's being used and, and trying to create better accessibility uh, to this data and, and to leverage it for a, a wide set of use cases. Um, but it is all focused on, you know, sustainability. And I'm encouraged by the fact of one of the big thought leaders, uh, Larry Fink, BlackRock CEO, hedge funds, you know, one of the largest hedge funds in the world, recently came out in his, in his annual letter and said that climate crisis will reshape finance. And we've been fortunate to see that this, there's, a, there's a big movement in finance and financial markets to uh, focus on sustainable finance. And what does that mean? And how? And and to add to evaluating companies on their practices and having sustainable operations. And the way to do that, um, one way to do that, is to use Earth observation data to evaluate how their operations are going, and to evaluate things like stranded assets as we transition from a you know coal-based energy environment to a renewable energy-based environment. So right at the start there, you talked about your, your company, Australia, and you talked about and you said, this is why we started the company. It, it seems to me that there's lots of companies out there that are, are interested in, the, in this field and they're trying to help these companies learn or, or trying to help people, other people and organizations learn what they can do with this data and trying to be involved. They want a piece of the pie, essentially. How is what Australia is doing different from, from these other players we see out there what well, what are you guys doing that that makes you special i, I try to focus on a yes and mentality i, I don't really look at it as uh, competition as much um, i think there are worthy competitions out there but i think the problems there's no end to the problems that we face as a as a society and and that we're facing on a planetary scale and so we focused on leveraging you know creating a an ecosystem and and, and really trying to help overcome the fragmentation that we're seeing in the space all the different data providers data sources it's big data the amount of the fragmentation of the skill set that you need to let you know to access the data to turn the data into information to make that available to other other folks that aren't going to write in python or or you know use an ai ml technique that may want it on a map or they may want it uh, in a chart or a graph 
Um, and so we, you know, when we think about it is, uh, there, there's a couple of different dimensions to this, right? There's the skills dimension necessary. And so at Estrella, we focus on providing a number of different platform products that, uh, are increased accessibility for a number of different user types. Um, if you just want to look at an image and see the change from, you know, today and, and five years ago over your city, you can do that. If you want to get more advanced, we provide you the platform and, and the scalable compute assets to do that. Uh, we're really focused on the business to business enablement. And I think that's where we're a little bit different. We're not trying to be be all and all solution provider. We want to enable specialists in the fields, all the different agronomists and, and, uh, utilities and energy players that could use this data. How can we help them uh, incorporate this into their offerings and into the, the end customer that they serve? So let's stay with that for a little while. So if a business comes to you, and I guess it really depends on what industry they're involved in, what, what sort of business they have, what's your approach to them? Is, is Earth Observation data always the right answer? No. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I'm sorry. I, I think that's, I think that's one of the things is like, you know, it's, it kind of goes as technologists, we're often guilty of creating a tool, you know, creating a hammer and looking for a nail, <laughs> you know, <Yeah>. like, <laughs> right. And, 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 and that's fair. And, and that's kind of our predisposition as technologists and earth observation is cool. And it's a lot of big data and AI ML is cool, but it's a technology and, we need to be business driven. What are the problems and what's the best way to solve that problem? And that's why when I think about, you know, we are on a geography podcast and that's fair. And we think about off earth observation, we typically equate that to satellite, but there are a number of different platforms and increasingly other data streams that are observing the earth, uh, including from your cell phone. You know, there's, there's a number of interesting technologies going on, uh, crowdsourcing platforms where people are taking pictures that then can be stitched together and, and fused with, satellite data and LiDAR data and, and create awesome 3D maps. And, and so we can fall in love with the technology, but we got we to gotta fall in love with the business problems and what's the best way to solve that. Yeah, I completely agree with what you said there, but I could see how it's confusing for people. It's exciting and confusing, right? On the one hand, we have this, this what seems like an incredible opportunity. All this new stuff is coming onto the market and, and we know from, from, well, history has taught us that you know the the first person to to get these new tools, grab them, and find a use case for them, and really take advantage of them. They can have some huge benefits. If we think about you know what happened in in the early days of the internet, for example, the first people to make websites, sure. the first people that realized that that Google that I could buy you know AdWords on Google, yeah, you know, they had a massive advantage. So I could understand people wanting to grab these tools and make use of them as soon as possible. So it's really interesting to hear you say it's not always the right answer. When is it the right answer? What industry where is it just made for? Or can you see immediate benefits of, of utilizing it? The, I think the shining example that we're seeing, and this is why it's, it, to me it's exciting, is you, know, you think about like global development and, and uh, sustainable development goals from the UN. And so understanding across borders, economic indicators and other things, that, that's like, that is a purpose-built <laughs> use case for this data. Um, just because of the large geographical region that can, you know, that data can be collected on from from the Earth observation satellite platforms. If you're a, a you know, more localized business, you're like, well, that's great. That's, you know, those are those are big governmental still kind of use cases, and you got the DoD and those use cases. Got it. That, that's interesting. 
but what about me? How, how, how does this impact me? And I think that we're seeing more and more uh, use cases on infrastructure monitoring, right-of-way monitoring, you know, in the property insurance space of understanding what's on homes and what's, you know, our solar panels going on homes. I think that's a, uh, there are some very interesting use cases that are much more localized that this data is increasingly being, being used for. I, I think you're right. I think monitoring in general is, is you know, a really big category. Just being able to watch things change, see how they're developing and try and identify trends based on that. I think that's going to be really interesting in the future. But I can see a massive amount of barriers too. Like again, it's all very exciting at the moment. But but what about identifying meaningful change? That that must be something that, that's difficult. To say a pixel's moved from red to green over the last three or four <laughs> days. I mean, we, we can all you know, imagine that and do that. But meaningful sure. change is something different. What, what, what does the timeline for this look like? Is this something that we're going to realize in the next five years, 10 years, 15 years, or are we going to be waiting another 30 years? It's a great question. Uh, if I could answer that, we'd probably be, we'd, we'd both be rich. <laughs> uh, <laughs> or uh, it, it's, a, it's a super, super challenging space. Um, you know, without getting too techy on the AI ML case, you hit a lot. You hit, there's a lot of components in, in that to unlocking you, you mentioned. It's like you, you're absolutely right. Change and understanding the change is of utmost interest to a lot of a, a lot of folks. Uh, there's a lot of barriers to that in, in leveraging this data. Cars and parking lots. It's not going to be the same algorithm as um, coral reef health. You know, monitoring that across the entire Caribbean. That changes. Detecting that change and the required processing of the data and, and the algorithm is very, very different um, from one another. There's components that are shared, but it's different. And so the barrier, and I know people talk about this, but the barrier specifically in, in teaching a machine is you still have to have that labeled training data. You have to have not just examples of the change that you care about, but of other changes so that the computer can start to discern. You know, when you think about you think about kids, it's not that much different. You know, you, you, you're teaching your child. I have a couple of young kids. And at first they start to say, everything's a cat. You know, everything that has a tail and ears and a little bit fuzzy is a cat. And then at time, over time, you start saying, no, that's a dog and that's a cat. And they start to understand the difference between, between what those, those two animals, those two species. And that's, that's equivalent. When we're talking about, and I'm being an AIML, this is what makes this really challenging about applying to this to Earth observation data, is that there is just so many variations, and the I mean the planet's a big place, and so many different types of change and under underlying uh, land cover types, and that we're going to be busy for quite a while <laughs> to get to a fully, you know, automated capability to detect all types of change of all variations for all use cases. And it's going to take a lot of uh, dedication of creating those, those label training data sets. And there's some great work going on from uh, nonprofit groups like Radiant Earth that has an ML hub that they, that is uh, focused on. It's, it's open source and GitHub. It's so focused on creating those um, some quintessential training data sets and benchmark data sets that we can understand how these algorithms are doing across a number of different use cases. And then there's there's uh, a number of uh, interesting open source projects to help with the labeling of that data. 
and uh, increasingly companies, um, social good companies and others that are focused on providing that those labelers. You know, it kind of started with Amazon Turk, which got really, you know, in the AIML space, Amazon Turk was the early, early indication of that. But doing this on geospatial and earth observation data, there's uniqueness to it. And so we're increasingly seeing more and more um, specializing companies and tool sets to help us create that label training data sets so that we can unlock the potential of the of applying machine learning techniques to earth observation. I've been recently talking to other thought leaders in the space, and it, it seems to me that the general consensus out there is that people, skilled professionals in this field, they're going to move from, from doing these kind of analysis on images themselves and sort of move more towards helping create training sets for these algorithms. Would, would, would you agree with that? It, it has to happen. Uh, <laughs> you know, there is a lot of interesting work to try to create synthetic data sets and, and use other techniques, which are which are really interesting, these kind of physics-based uh, synthetic data sets. And there's a lot of research and academic research going into that. And that, that's an effort to try to uh, shortcut the manual labor process of, of putting, you know, manual process of putting people against creating these label training data sets. We got a ways to go there uh, before we, we can only rely on this kind of, those kind of uh, synthetic data develop you know processes so briefly before in the conversation we mentioned that you know earth observation is not just um data collected from satellite platforms it can be from a lot of different kind of platforms um so obviously that is aerial platforms that's drones that could be uh, cell phones and increasingly perhaps also cars i would imagine with with, ca- with cars being equipped with cameras and moving around the world is there any one of those platforms, or perhaps one I haven't mentioned, which which you think has a whole bunch of really exciting capabilities or, or promise at the moment? Interesting question. I don't know. As a technologist, I see the value of all of them. <laughs> I think satellites continue, you know, as a class of, of data, continue to be exciting. There's a number of impending launches of new sensor types, hyperspectral, you know, more synthetic aperture radar, LIDAR, other, other, you know, RF, uh, other sensor types that are going to help us understand methane emissions and, and a lot of these other big drivers of climate change. So that's, that's super exciting. One of my good friends is recently, you know, entrepreneur as well, started a company uh, called Pixel 8. Um, and they focus on taking, taking cell phone data where you take pictures and, and conflating it with satellite-derived imagery to create these high-fidelity 3D maps. And I think that's, that's a really interesting, interesting use case, too. Globally, everybody's walking around with a, with a cell phone in their pocket. And those are very, very powerful machines that have a concept of position, and they have the ability to absorb the Earth. And these crowdsourced platforms that are, that are pulling that in, it's really, though, how do we, how do we handle that data and then how do we fuse it with other data and to orthorectify our data and to you know all the processing steps we have to do to make sense of it and i think um i think those are those are pretty exciting we are seeing a lot of drone drones another area uh more and more demand for drone data is is coming down but once again you know this is where being a young industry you know in earth observation we're still grappling with having standards and standards-based approaches so that it makes it easier to discover these data and make it easier for these data to be to work with each other. And, and I think 
continue to push on that is going to be important so that we can make use make use of always exciting new data sources coming online. And I think I think your, that observation there that really speaks to that idea of market fragmentation that we're seeing at the moment. There's so many players out there at the moment. I think in some ways I feel like a lot of them are going to have to die off. We're going to have to establish some clear winners, and and those winners are going to step up with, with their standards and say, okay, this is what Earth observation data looks like from now on, kind of thing. And even though that sounds really bad. <laughs> For, for the industry, I think in some ways it's going to simplify things a lot. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think we're already seeing it. I mean, there's definitely some consolidation going on. I think what we haven't seen yet, though, is we see consolidation within one of those kind of data streams. So in the Earth observation space and the satellite space, we're seeing some consolidation. I mean, one of the big newsworthy events was when Digital Globe and MDA um, merged and created Maxar, but that was still within that kind of satellite space. What's interesting is the players like Microsoft, some of the traditional AWS, you know, AWS mentioning or, or, or not mentioning, but um, announcing last year that they were going to outfit most of their data centers with um, satellite ground stations. And so I, I think you're right. I think we're going to see it, but it's, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out from this, you know, the state of earth observation where we have technology companies that are working across all these platforms. Could you just walk the listeners through what you mean by uh, the, these ground stations? What, are they satellite launch pads? Are they places where data can be downloaded from satellites? What, what does that mean? It's cheaper than ever to get to space. It's, it's, it's cheaper to launch. You got uh, SpaceX putting up 14,000 communication satellites, and they're launching no matter what, and there's people doing ride shares. But those ground stations are the critical piece. Because those ground stations spread throughout the, across the planet are the opportunity for when the satellite comes within range that it can transmit the data that's collecting back down to the earth to be processed and, and leveraged. And so having these ground stations co-located with data storage and compute assets that we more and more do in a cloud native environment um, reduces that time to operationalizing it, to getting it and making decisions on it as an organization. That that's really interesting. That that's a piece of the 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 satellite infrastructure that we don't often, or at least I don't often think about. I tend I tend to focus on the rockets that are launching the satellites and not think about how much how much that how much it takes to get that data back down to Earth. And then of course, like it makes perfect sense to be process to be downloading that data at the same place where the data is, is potentially going to be processed instead of having to move those huge volumes of data over to another storage center to process it over there that, that was really interesting thanks thanks for that insight no problem i think the net you talk about the next future and and this is as it gets launched is uh, more and more people as we find these high value algorithms like uh, detecting methane those algorithms are actually being put on the on the on the sensors itself and so instead of transmitting down the raw data that then has to be processed we're starting to see some applications where we're actually applying the algorithm on board on the satellite itself and transmitting down the answer and, and so that's oh, wow. that's really where the space is going that you know how do we speed up the time from the collection of the measurement the, the pixel have you to to the insight and, and to drive decisions and to make decisions that, that's really interesting. I like that idea of taking the algorithm to the data as much as possible, as opposed to trying to bring all the data over to the algorithm. I mean, why not? I guess it depends on the, the compute power that you have on board these different platforms. But when you say it like that, it, it makes perfect sense. 
yeah, it's exciting times right now. Those those type of applications are are really being focused on million dollar problems. Um, I think though that they're the applicability of Earth observation data and what what it's going to take to to leverage it to solve some of our big global problems. Um, it, it it's really going to take us uh, continuing to lower you know create better accessibility so that we can solve for folks the the ten thousand dollar problems without you know the amount of resources because you know it's pretty expensive still absolutely but i think in terms of access to data one of the things that that i thought about was well that's another way of condensing the data right absolutely and then that must make things cheaper and faster and hopefully will mean that we'll get more penetration out into the to the market because it'll be more accessible so like from that side of thing that sounded really really interesting yeah it, it absolutely is it's exciting my AIML side of me says I still want some of the raw data coming down. So hopefully we're, we're we don't just just do that because I think there's a lot of opportunities to and that's the whole that's been the whole excitement around uh, machine learning is to use data that was collected for different purposes and unlock hidden insights into it that in, and ask it questions that we didn't we didn't collect it for to begin with and and that's that's a that's exciting too. So. I'm looking forward to the, the growth of the industry. I think having um, those algorithms on board, but also continuing to collect raw measurements as we discover more and more ways to use this data to answer more and more problems because we, we shortly... I completely agree. I've just got a couple more questions for you. I, I realize we're, we're running short on time, but I hope you have time to answer the, these two questions. The first one is back to an idea we talked about earlier in the conversation, and, and that was data fusion. So. Primarily, when I think about Earth observation, when I think about remotely sensed data, I tend to think of one channel of data, one data stream. But I think that perhaps the opportunity might be in fusing data with with lots of different kinds of streams. And we talked a little bit about that. Even if we stop collecting, collecting data now, could this actually be the real gold rush with this fusing data instead of collecting more of it? Is that could this be the, you know, the, the silver bullet or the, the the end game in terms of Earth observation? It's interesting. Uh, I haven't thought about it in that terms before, as far as it being the end game. I, I definitely think there's a gold rush there. Um, uh, we're seeing some applications of that, um, and and we are we at Australia have done it where we've been fusing uh, optical, passive optical data streams. You can think uh, pictures uh, with some of these active sensors, the synthetic aperture radar. That's been viable because synthetic aperture radar. While can be noisy, it has the ability to penetrate clouds. And traditionally in Earth observation, that's like clouds are the bane of existence of, of any remote scientist, <laughs> <laughs> you know. And, and, and so being able to fuse those two data sources together creates, uh, we, we've seen huge improvements in our modeling to be able to classify crops and, and, and other applications that we worked on. And so I think there is a lot of opportunity um, to fused data that is we're just now i mean it just now literally in the last six nine months really starting to see some compelling use cases but but you're right uh more and more data streams they they do have a chance that um as technologists that we can we can kind of uh get distracted by all the cool shiny objects coming <laughs> as opposed to staying yeah. with a, a focus and and really finding that um, problem that that technology answers. 
Yeah, it's interesting. We keep coming back to like, yes, we've got all the stuff. We've got all these shiny objects. We could do this, this, and that. But it still really feels like we're both missing that that use case. We've talked about a few different use cases, but you know what I mean? It feels like everyone's sort of fumbling in the dark still trying to find a use case. They've got the shiny, they've got a tool. You know, where's the problem? I've got a hammer, where's the nail kind of thing? And I think that's really interesting. Um, my, my final question for you is... So we often talk about being overwhelmed by by these huge volumes of data, and for me, that often I, I always think of huge volumes of data. I think of Earth observation data, but as a geospatial professional, I, I work as a consultant in my day job. I don't often feel like I'm overwhelmed by my choice of building footprint data, for example, or the, the different road data sets I could use, and you know. Earth observation data is often the basis for a lot of this kind of stuff. You know, traditionally it would be digitized and then sort of make its way through the system down to people like me. When when are people like me at the the bottom of the data chain, if you will, going to see a sort of flood, a, a wave of data coming down towards us? It's interesting. We're, we're starting to see more. There's a lot a lot more open projects, you know, uh, collaborations that I think will start to produce more and more data. I'm always encouraged by times where, you know, Microsoft just recently released their building footprints data set. There, there's plenty of data out there, to your point. The question is, is that a lot of the big use cases have been, I think, larger geographies. And I guess the question is, um, how do we enable folks that are focused on delivering localized solutions, access more of the data, one, discover the data that is out there, and and then know that they can incorporate into their houses. Because I think there's actually more data out there than, than maybe perhaps you're aware of and, and have used in your traditional day job. But in the fragmented marketplace we are in society, you know, in, in this, it's almost like a death by a thousand portals. It's really hard to find the data, <laughs> the data that you can use and, and in trying to fuse that together and, and have, you know, that's one of our, our products at Australia, our Earth on Demand is, is focused on that da- data aggregation, data discoverability and helping get to all these, pulling from all these different portals and put it into a, a place where you can discover it and then go go get it from from the different, get it from the different portals. And so I think there is a, there's actually probably a lot more data out there than typically is being used, but there's a cost that comes to that, right? Like you have a, de- you have a deadline, you have something to do and you know the data sources and you trust those data sources. So how do we increase the visibility and data discoverability is, I think is, is a big, big challenge and opportunity. Would you mind providing me with a, a link to that that source that you mentioned? I think that'd be really interesting for our listeners to be able to follow up on that and, and come and check out that that data discoverability tool that 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 you've built. Sure, yeah, you can go to uh, EarthOnDemand.Australia.Earth, and it's a free tool that you can use. It's a doesn't require any you know big sophistication, uh, no coding. It's simply interacting with the map, drawing your area of interest on the map and, and the time that you care about. And then you can start to see what you know free image resources are available to you. And, and then you can look at those. You know We do the processing right there on the fly to let you see a natural color representation and then provide you capabilities to get to the underlying scientific data to, to incorporate. That sounds really interesting. I will definitely include a link to that in the show notes. Um, Daniel, this has been a fascinating conversation. I, I really appreciate your time. I really appreciate you coming along and, and telling the listeners a little bit about Earth observation. I think we've been we've covered a lot of ground in this conversation, and I'm I'm sure that they've that the, the listeners have got some value out of it. So thank you so much for that. 
where, where can we go to, to, to reach out to you if we have questions or is there somewhere you'd, you'd like the, the listeners to, to follow if, if they would like to sort of follow along with, with your work and find out more about you? Sure. Uh, you can check out our website, astrea.earth. Uh, and then, uh, of course, we're on Twitter and, and LinkedIn. Uh, Twitter, our, it's at uh, Astrea, I-N-C is our Twitter handle. So you can, you can follow us there. And then uh, we have, a, of course, a LinkedIn company page that we we connect with as well and and once again I'll, i'll be sure to link those up in the show notes thank you so much for your time i really appreciate it thanks daniel So thanks again to our sponsor, OpenCage Data. And I think I think that this really sums up OpenCage Data. When you go to the website, under the frequently asked questions, there's two questions there that I think are really interesting. One is, do you make maps? And the answer is no. And the other question is, do you provide a routing service? And the answer is no. What they do, though, is provide an amazing geocoder. And they do it really well. So they're a company that's focused on geocoding. And they offer incredible service, and I would, I can highly recommend these guys. If you have any geocoding needs, check out OpenCage Data. And that's it for another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel, and I want to say a big thanks to, for everyone who's tuned in again this week. It's much appreciated. If you could do me a huge favor, please share this podcast with a friend or someone you think might enjoy it. It helps the show grow. It helps us reach more people. It helps us spread the word about Geospatial. I would really, really appreciate that. If you haven't subscribed, consider doing that. I've got a whole bunch more great guests lined up for you. And yeah, I look forward to bringing you more interesting stories from the geospatial world. As always, you are more than welcome to reach out to me on social media. You'll find me at Mapscaping on Twitter, Mapscaping on Facebook, and Map underscore View on Instagram. I, I really look forward to hearing from you. Okay, that's it for me. We'll talk again next week. Bye.